Good day, everybody. I'm Sergeant Joe Cardi from Peel Region of Police. And how do I say this? I think we're extremely lucky here today. We have an ex-sergeant. I mean, because he's retired. I still wouldn't call him ex. I would say Sergeant Lonnie Blackett with us today. And the reason why I'm kind of thrilled to have him, Lonnie started his career back when Peel started in 1974. Worked 33 years. Retired in 2007. Worked many areas from the front line to CIB to recruiting, had a detail at the airport. But what I really like to tell our audience is Lonnie, believe it or not, was our first black officer to serve in Peel Regional Police. In well, Brampton. In Brampton. Mm-hmm. Oh, why don't we start off with that? How did that? How did this all come about? Well, I think since I was a kid about eight years old, Joe, I... Uh, had a secret desire. Always wanted to be a police officer. It's just something that was within me. I just wanted it. It was either policing or the military, but I chose uh, to go into law enforcement. Um, initially, my dad was not too happy about that. But as the years went by, and then he passed away, and um, I got into it. It's something I always wanted to do. Now, in 1973, I had moved here from Montreal in 1972. Wait, you're so you're from the Belle Provence, from like the Belle Provence, <laughs> like that's where I'm from. Okay, so I always have to ask my fellow. Sorry for interrupting you, but I really got to know this. I'm a Montrealer. Why did you come here? Well, a lot of it was due to the political situation in Quebec at the time. Um, the company I worked for um, decided they were going to relocate to the Toronto area. They moved into Brampton. Now, when they moved in here in early 72, Brampton, or Bramley, actually, the, the part of uh, they moved into was not the way it was today. It was basically farmer's field, orchards. And um, I was just a young kid. Uh, do you want to come with us? Sure, why not? And uh, I think, in retrospect, that's one of the best decisions I made. Because had I stayed in Quebec, I don't believe I would have reached my potential in terms of wanting to be a police officer. Um, I did have um, the intention of applying to the uh, Quebec Provincial Police, or the Sûreté Quebec, um, but my French wasn't good enough, and there's no way I would have made it. And um, Knowing what I know about the Quebec, uh, uh, Sûreté Quebec, in terms of their their, their attitudes or lack of uh, minorities, I don't think it would have done me any good anyway. So uh, I got into Brampton and um, was always interested. Strange thing is a couple of things I've just remembered here now is that um, the company I worked for, I was one of the key holders in the event of alarms and that type of thing. And um, there were two officers from the Chinkusi police showed up the first time. Both of them are now passed on. One eventually was my training officer, my initial training officer. uh, He taught me the job. I I speak very highly of him, um, Jerry Davenport. Um, The second one was uh, John Byrne, who became an inspector, uh, and he also passed away. So I got to know these guys and spoken to them, but um, nothing happened until one day I saw... A Shinkusi cruiser parked in a McDonald's lot in Queen Street, and uh, I went to pick up something, and I thought, let me talk to the officer. And uh, basically he said, look, um, the chief we have at this time here in Shinkusi is not much chance he's going to hire you. You're a little bit too dark for his liking. And um, he said, but if you wait till next year, 1974, we're going regional. We're going to be hiring a lot of people. How does that affect you when someone tells you they're not going to hire because of your skin color? I think at the time you were slightly taken back, but you've got to deal with reality in life. And I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'm a little bit not as young as I look, Joe. I'm not going to go to my age, but uh, (laughs) all of my life I've been this color. So I've uh, I've learned to go with the flow and take the punches. Um, It didn't really bother me at the time because I figured, look, we're going... We're going to go regional. There's a possibility this force is going to expand. Keep in mind, the chiefs, these guys who are older, they're not going to be there all the time. They're going to move on, which is what happened. Um, so you didn't ply right away to the service after that conversation with the officer? No, I waited the next year, in 1974, when Peel was formed. 
And uh, then I stopped into the old recruiting office, which at the time was a one-man recruiting center. Uh, and uh, we went from there. How did your friends feel about you be wanting to become an officer and getting hired? Was that something that held you back? Like you said, your father was kind of skeptical. My dad wasn't too interested at the time. And, um, but, you know, as I got older, he realized, hey, you know, you've got your life to live. Yes, there were some problems with some, underscore, some members of my family, even friends. Um, keep in mind the 70s were still a bit of a tumultuous time in terms of race relations, mostly in the United States. And as we know, anything that happens in the States tend to, tends to affect us here. Um, you had the civil rights movement, uh, we had a lot of uh, cities being burned, etc. I had a good friend of mine, we were, we were soccer players, because I played a lot of soccer. I played first-class soccer in Montreal and played a lot of soccer. And when I had told him and some of the guys that uh, I was going to be a police officer, and he told me straight up, you're going to be a cop? I'm done with you, man. I don't trust you guys. And up to this day, he has nothing to do with it. I don't know if he's alive or if he's dead. I had family members who backed away from me, who backed away from me away from me to the point that um, one of my nieces even got married and I was never invited. I was seen as being the enemy. I was seen as becoming white, not becoming a police officer. That's a real difficult situation to be in, especially it was. at a young age. It was. It bothered me, but the way things worked out, several, several years later, everybody saw and realized oh, what the heck the police are up against and what the police do, and um, everybody came back together and we were one, one happy family. <laughs> so did you know at the time you were the first black officer? No, I did not. I did not. When I started in Brampton, no one ever told me what the demographics were in terms of uh, the policing. I didn't know that. When I came on, I was the first in Brampton, and that was from 74 to 81 before a second officer was hired a second black officer who was at my station. At the time I started, though, there was another black officer. Uh, he was with Mississauga. Prior to Mississauga, he was with the old Toronto Township Police. And, of course, at regionalization, became Peel. And it's then I met him on the job. But uh, at that time, there was only two of us on. And that lasted, as I said, from 74 to 81. It was, uh, at that time, Peel was very small. There were less than 400 officers, um, but you had two black guys. <laughs> <laughs> How did your peers treat you? Because it's a different time in 1974. Did it's they accept time? you? Yes. Um, in general, yes. In general, yes. And I think a lot of it had to do, well, my personality, I'm a people person. I, I would talk to anybody. You give me half an hour with you, and you're, you're going to love me, man. You know? <laughs> but I think a lot of it, too, the, the training officer I had, Jerry Davenport, he took me under his wings as though I was literally his blood brother. He taught me the job. He introduced me to the guys. He um, showed me how to do things right, and if I screwed up, how to correct yourself. And, uh, again, my personality, I was, uh, you know, welcomed by the guys. There will always be one or two people who had their problems. Some of the guys that I, uh, I work with literally had never had a black friend, never went to high school with any blacks, um, didn't know much about black community, but the stereotypes were there. Those days I had here. <laughs> and it was very, very uh, often I'd be sitting in the report room or something and guys would come on and rub your head type of thing to see what it felt like, and I knew that. But you realize this is the first experience for them. Um, you sucked it up, you went on. I think if people were to do that in today's world, it would, be, it would cause a lot of problems for them. But I, I was aware of it, and uh, so you went along with it. But you're aware of it, but did it affect you? Did it bother you, or is it something that you expected because it, you, you understood that maybe they, didn't, they never worked with a black man before? Well, I understood that, that they never did, and this was part of their becoming or getting to know someone who was black. Um, but we had good times. We, As I said before, speaking to your assistant, um, because of the, the shift system we worked at the time, we worked eight-hour shifts, seven to three, eight to four, three to 11. To, and there was a lot of time for socializing. Um, we had internal... 
hockey leagues, uh, baseball leagues, interdivisional leagues. So by five o'clock, we'd be at a diamond or rink someplace, and um, you got to know the guys. We're less than four hundred people. We knew just about everybody at the time. Uh, now, you know, when I retired X numbers of years ago, I would see guys' names in reports, and I would say, "Who the hell is this guy?" You know, he's a sergeant inspector. Never heard of him because we're we're so large now. So that takes me to the community. Like, you're telling me how you fit in with your, your peers. At the time, 1974, Brampton, Mississauga, let's face it, it's a white community. Absolutely. How do they treat you? Out in the streets, didn't have any problems really dealing with people. Um, there were the steers. There were the people who would, you know, you would hear someone muttering or murmuring something as you, as you went by. But I will tell you, um, one situation that stands out, and I mentioned this in my last interview, um, there was a, still is a hotel uh, in downtown Brampton, the Queen and Kennedy era, which was a rather nefarious type of hotel in those days. And um, I responded to a call of a domestic uh, situation. And uh, keep in mind in those days, you had to look the part of the officer. We're dressed in tunics, Sam Browns, a cross straw holster, and a spit and polish. Your boots had to be shined. I get up to the, uh, up to the floor, the, the, the apartment number, and I'm knocked on the door, and the, the, the female complainant looked at me, and you could see a sense of shock. And she said to me, are you a police officer? I see some identification, so I reached into my pocket and showed her my badge and warrant card, and she still looked at me for a bit before she let me into the room. Took the report, and um, in talking to her subsequently, she was from a small town in Ontario, and she had never, ever seen a black police officer in Ontario or in Canada. Didn't know that we existed. Um, some people, some people may look at that and accuse her of being a racist. No, she did not know. She did not know. It was definitely um, a different time. It was a different time. And as I've also said, uh, by being on the front lines, people like myself and the initial officer who was on there, the black officer, we blazed the trail. At times, one felt like maybe I should quit. This isn't a job for me because, again, being the first black officer, the first minority there, and I must say, it wasn't only blacks. When they first started in 74, when the, uh, the department started hiring females, we were second guest to the nth degree. Everything you did had to be checked and double-checked. It's as though, well, you can't do anything. You can't even write. Um, and females went through this, too. Females went through this. I saw it. The, the, the things that were said about female officers coming on before, uh, coming on, um, we had to blaze the trail. And 74 was the year in general, as far as I remember, um, in Ontario for sure, um, when females started to come into policing. And in those days, the females had very, very narrow assigned roles. It was usually youth bureau, which had at the time. So they couldn't go out in the street. They couldn't handle the calls. And you would hear the comments like, well, I'm going into the bar fight. I don't want some little 50-pound female with me. But as I uh, went on the job, became a sergeant, trust me, sometimes I'd prefer to take some of the female officers with me because, buddy, they kick butt. Everybody brings a different <laughs> skill set to the <laughs> That's table. Right. That's so, right. So like, we're discussing like your early times right here, mm -hmm. and, it, and it's, it's mind-boggling. I, I never experienced I'm younger than mm -hmm. you. I didn't understand how that was. I'm getting a good picture from you. I want to move into the future, 2007 when you retired. Mm -hmm. Now, was there a big difference? Like you just mentioned females. You just uh, mentioned how that community member saw you at the hotel and couldn't believe a black officer was working. In 2007 mm -hmm. now, which is 14 years ago, mm -hmm. was there a big change or is it? Yes, there was a big change then. There's even a bigger change now. Uh, when I left in 2007, there were several uh, minority officers that used that term which encompassed uh, people of different uh, ethnicities. There were a lot of female officers. One or two of these females started to make upward uh, rise in the ranks. Uh, the odd female officer uh, or the odd black officer. Um, but today, it's, it's just a complete uh, 180. 
police force, police department must, must reflect the makeup of its community. It has to. Yes, you have to have your community members working it for the community. It has to. I mean, you're going to be totally inefficient. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I, I always tell everybody the key to the success of a police service is your community. I have never been sitting in a parking lot, for example, and a bank robbery takes place, and I go, oh, I catch the guy. No, if a bank robbery takes place, I go to the scene, a citizen will tell me, yes, it's this guy, he went over here, I'll go over there, yep, went over here, I won't go over there, see somebody else, I said, oh, that's Johnny, I recognize him. That's how we get him. The community is the key to successful policing. There are situations, I'll give you one situation, and this has to do with um, someone from the, uh, the gay community. Um, when I was on a job, I did some teaching at Sheridan College in Oakville, and the, the subject or the course was uh, police and minority groups. And um, I was able to get people from the gay community in Toronto. It took quite uh, a lot of persuasion to get them to come out to talk to the class one night. The class was comprised uh, mostly of uh, young officers or people who wanted to get into policing. And at that time, the relationship between the police departments in general um, and the gay community was not a good one. These people began to trust me. We kept in touch. There was a homicide in 12th Division. Um, the corner of your Ontario and Shirobi departments there. And it was sort of a whodunit. The victim was a member of the United States Customs based at Pearson. I got a call one day from a member of the gay community giving me the whole spiel. Who the heck the guy was? The victim was also gay. But the guy's had a car, and the car is gone. By the time homicide took it over and flagged it with the border, the car had crossed over the border. We were able to get the guy somewhere way, way down in the, in the southern states. But if those people had not come forward by trusting me, knowing that I was not going to make fun of them, I was not going to treat them as though they were second-class citizens, well, we solved the homicide. That's amazing. And this is the type of thing. That, we have to reach out to the community genuinely. I'll tell you something, Joe. We all have rights. We all have our own prejudices. It's natural. Three of us in this room here, we've got things where people we don't like. That's fine. Identify them. Know what they are. But when you are doing this job, you've got to separate them. You're dealing with the public. You took an oath that you're going to deal with the public without favor or affection, without malice or ill will. And you've got to treat people the way you want to be treated. Also, if you do not, keep in mind, there is a remedy within the Charter of Rights that if people believe their rights have been infringed, they're coming after you. And usually, it's a monetary settlement, but that's minor. Think about the negative publicity that you have generated for your police department, for yourself, for your family. If your name is mentioned, think about the kids and they're going to school. Kids are hard on kids. How can your kids survive in school? How can your wife survive at the office? Causes a lot of problems because you are bullheaded. And you're going to call people's names or treat them like crap. Those days are gone. Gone. You, you bring up some valid points that you're totally accurate on. Accurate, sorry. Um, what I really like to hear is that story you told was remarkable, how you use community policing with the gay community to solve a homicide. And this is something that policing, uh, with our community safety well-being plan, that, that's the area we want to go back to. Which is funny, it shouldn't be go back to. It's mm -hmm. how we expand it when you were doing it. Mm -hmm. That's the key is relationships, building these relationships and um, and you're living proof on the success of crime comes down with working with the community. I just, something just popped in my head and I, I forgot to ask you this because uh, as a fellow Montrealer, coming here was a cultural difference mm -hmm. and obviously probably for you in the 70s too. But me being a Montrealer, I got to ask you this question and if your answer is not correct, I'm going to get angry. 
<laughs> Are you still a Habs fan? Yes, I am. Are you? <laughs> I, I didn't expect that. I thought yes, I am. Yes, I am. Because um, I get teased by my Maple Leafs fans all the time. I'll tell you something. Um, <laughs> when I was at uh, 11th Division, more so at the airport, um, there were three of us there at the airport division who were solid Habs fans. And I don't know if you would know these people. Um, Trish Tagliari. Yes. Uh, Tony Genie, who is now retired. Heard the and, name. Yep. And myself. And um, we took a lot of ribbing from the guys back and forth. As a matter of fact, I have a photo taken that um, I have uh, hanging up at my, in my den in uniform. And those days we wore the tie. Uh, I think it was fall time, so we had the long sleeve shirts without the jacket, but the tie and my tie pin was uh, <laughs> abs tie. <laughs> I used to put that on specifically, <laughs> piss people off. <laughs> oh, I I still do that to this day. Well, I'll tell I you get... something. I'll tell you something. I remember going to the old forum, not the last forum. This was the forum back in the '60s. Okay, when Toblake was coach. When people like um, Rajan Wool, Mark Tardif, Guy Lafleur, these guys were playing for the junior Canadians. They hadn't made it up into the, the NHL yet. And I remember going to the, the forum in those days to watch them. Uh, the Gumper, um, Lauren Worsley was, was, was the goalkeeper. In those days, they had uh, Ralph Backstrom. These are the old guys. We're talking close to 50 years ago, okay? Yes, Henri Lachard, Jean Beliveau. Big time. So I just go to Henri Henri uh, Richard's uh, tavern all the time. Um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, uh, right now the Leafs are playing hot. I'm supporting the Leafs. I am supporting the Leafs. But yeah, it died in the wool. What the heck, you know? I mean, uh, I support the Blue Jays, too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. It sounds like you had such an amazing career. I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting, so, I'm so proud to have you here because these stories are so entertaining. A question I like to ask you because I think this is a question that, um, especially you being someone who already finished their career, is who's the person that you remember the most? Who's the in one policing? In police, or no, could be community member. Who impacted you the most as an officer? Well, I'll just take a step back. The, the, the person who... Uh, Played perhaps the biggest role in my life was my father. As much as he didn't want me to be police, he raised me. Um, this is something I don't get into, but uh, my mother died. I was two years old, and my dad brought me up. and uh, Very strict. <laughs> if he hadn't been strict, I might have been on the other side. But in terms of policing, um, I would say the, the, the initial recruiter, who's now uh, retired, I don't know if you were on when he, uh, he retired, um, Superintendent Don Fletcher. He was the guy that hired me. I know the name, but never right. met. My training officer, Jerry Davenport. I tell you, I, I can't say enough about this guy. He was a decent man, a genuine, decent human being. And he looked after me, as I said, as I was his blood brother. And also the first chief we had, Doug Burroughs. He put Peel on the map. Very innovative individual, very forward-thinking, uh, a very fair man. Um, he had his hands full with some of the... People from the other departments at the times of uh, amalgamation, they thought differently, they looked at life, looked at the world differently. But in general, he put us on the map, he got us the equipment, uh, because when we started, the equipment we had, I mean, was, compared to now, it just, you know, it wasn't there. And But we survived, we survived having used the equipment, the radio, the radio system, for example, when we had, was nothing more than two cans held together by a string. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, um... We didn't have portable radios. You got out of the cruiser, you're on your own. You couldn't communicate. You had to get back to the car. You didn't want to leave your cruiser running in your, uh, somebody's house because the cruiser may not be there. Many times you'd be rolling around on the ground trying to arrest somebody. There's no way to call for backup unless somebody slides around or uh, one of the uh, community members looks out and sees it and phones in, and then you get the backup. So you had to be fit. You had to be ready to fight. We did a lot of fighting in those days. Oh, yeah, physical fighting. It was good. <laughs> Different time with no radio. <laughs> Since you brought up technology, mm -hmm. a little birdie wanted me to ask you this question. Okay, I'll even say, Inspector Warfield, mm -hmm. he told me to ask you this. He said, you must ask this question. What is it with this bulletproof vest, and how did it start in Peel? Because he says there's a connection to you. Tommy Warfield was one of the best guys I had on my, uh, on my platoon as a constable as well. Dan Cousineau was another guy, good people. 
um, we made a lot of fun of Tommy, and I won't go into that those days of some of the things we called him. He was a little bit unorthodox, but he did the job. I believe I was always someone who was concerned about self-preservation. I realized what police work was. And yes, moving out of Montreal where there was always gunfights with the police and coming to Toronto in the old days or the greater Toronto, which Toronto was referred to as Toronto the Good, this was 74, 75. Somehow I came up on a catalog that showed um, body armor, bulletproof vests. This was a place out in Calgary. It was one of the first ones that they, they brought out. And uh, I looked at it, contacted them, and I decided I was going to purchase uh, body armor for myself. And those days cost me 150 bucks. That's a lot of money. You then. bought it yourself out of your bought own? bought it myself in my own pocket. And uh, it was just something like a sandwich board in the front and the back. There was nothing at the side panels. You had the Velcro straps. And I used to wear it. And again, I took a lot of ribbing from the guys. You think this is Detroit? What the hell is this, you know? And then suddenly, within a matter of months, a couple of Toronto uh, police officers got shot, killed. And guys started to wake up and think, where'd you get that? You know, like, uh, how much is it? Uh, can we have a look at it? Would you just um, wear that over your uniform? No, or was it? Wore it, it was soft body armor. I wore it oh, under so my shirt. Under your shirt? So under the in, shirt. Okay. Yeah. Then Chief Burroughs at the time found out that uh, I had this thing and um, had my staff sergeant through the chain of command uh, had me supply him with the, with the specifics on it and because uh, he intended to, to, to buy him for the members. He certainly did. Shortly after that, the provincial government decided to pick up the tab and uh, everybody was, uh, was fitted with uh, soft body armor. Yeah, but even when I worked in the CIB, um, I wore my soft body armor the shirt. What did, what did your colleagues say? Because yeah, you're, uh, the, you're the first yes, person with, with a vest. Look, if, if you want to be in this job, you got to have a sense of humor, okay? And uh, they rolled me every which way, but, I mean, I could give up back. And then the situation happened. We're in the afternoon shift uh, in CIB, an individual was brought in from square one. This was a very violent individual. I believe it was shoplifting and assaulting security. And the officer who brought him in, he searched him, put him in the cells downstairs, brief CIB as to what was going down. The detective uh, went down subsequently and brought this guy up. Good for the detective. He said, you know, I'm going to search you, drop your drawers. And the guy resisted. I've already been searched. And he was forceful. We're going to search you. And he started searching him down right in the front of his underwear was a loaded 9mm. The oh. officer who uh, made the initial arrest, of course... He was, um, well, what's a good term I should use? He was lectured to by just about everybody. Um, he subsequently left the force after a few months because he realized his name was Mud and he mucked up. The thing is, at that time, um, I saw the opportunity now to inject some humor into this, and I said, see, this guy, if he had known the physical layout of this office, he could have come up blasting. You'd have been killed. You'd have been killed. I might have taken a bullet. I might have shot him. And I'd have to go to your house and tell your wife what the hell happened. You still think I shouldn't wear my body armor, guys? <laughs> it stopped. I it stopped. Everybody wanted body armor after that. It stopped, yeah. So, but yeah, I always believed in, in, in self protection And even when body armor first came out, okay, there was no real procedure that says the officers must it was up to the sergeants or the staffs to decide who would and my platoon you were there was no ifs ands or buts a lot of guys why it's too hot we got air-conditioned cars yeah but just bulky you're putting the damn thing on no ifs ands or buts made sure my guys had him on and i'll tell you there was a situation on Steeles Avenue at Kennedy. An officer was going to a call uh, red lights and siren and somehow he lost control and smacked, and the car rolled, and uh, good fortunate that we also had the roll bar then. In the old days, we didn't. But the steering wheel just impacted right into him. And uh, the medical staff said if he didn't have that body armor on, it's a good chance he would have just compacted his chest even more. Wow, that's yep. a good story to show that you should always wear your body There was armor. an individual in my platoon who's no longer on the job now. It was a day shift, uh, 11 Division. It was home invasion that went wrong. He was one of the first units on the scene, and there was a bit of a gunplay going on, and he took one also in the torso, body armor. 
when the trial was over and the evidence was done with, he took that bullet that was compacted and he had it gilded. And he wears it uh, around his neck. He, uh, he left the job within a year after and went into his mother's real estate business. He just thought, you know, one chance is enough. And uh, that was it. But the guys could have been killed while wearing the thing. It's needed. And especially in today's world, you know, we've gone to the militaristic look. Uh, so people wear them on the outside. Um, I guess as an old timer, I have a little bit of a problem with uh, the way the cops look like uh, the military now. I think it's, um, I prefer the, the soft look in the old days, but that's neither here nor there. Times change. <laughs> wow, I guess you're one of the first to have body armor and peel. That's amazing. What, you've been around 33 years. What, the, what investigation impacted you or you remember the most? Oh, man, there's all kinds of them. I mean, some of them I've forgotten. I've been retired for 14 years now. I've forgotten a lot of shit, but um, pardon me, a lot of stuff. But um, um, I remember in CIB, we came upon a fellow, myself and my partner. I don't remember how we got onto him, but um, he went for in excess of 300 break and enters. Started in 11th Division. It took us two days driving around with this guy. Started 11th Division, 12th Division, Metro 22 Division, Etobicoke, and into Halton. And we had to get these police forces involved, too, the detectives who were working in their B&E units. And, um, and he took us to an apartment in, in Halton that was rented by, let's say, Mr. Big that he was working for. And this was where they stashed the loot. And this place was full to the rafters with stolen stuff. I mean, we had to do a press conference and, you know, uh, put some of the stuff on uh, display. And it took a long, long time to get people from Toronto and Halton and Peel to, to try and identify their stuff. Um, that's a lot, he, of, he that's thought a it was lot fun. of work to get that's all that stuff. a lot of work. He thought it was fun. Uh, I think he got a year. Um, other things? Um, there were a couple of homicides, which I was not, not being in, in, in homicide, but assisting with, um, a couple of situations, plane crashes, 11th division, being patrol sergeant on the lake shore. And there was, um, a light plane, I believe it was a Cessna, single engine. It was in the late summer that went right down off the cement plant, so it was right within the Peel border, the Halton border, just straight nose down. It was a murder-suicide. Uh, the pilot wanted to kill his wife, and then he killed himself. Our dive team came out, Halton came out. We had uh, Metro boats, the Coast Guard, the, the, the military dropping flares all night. We were out there looking. And I think late in the afternoon of the next day, one body was found uh, floating quite a distance away in the lake. To this day, we've never found the second body or the engine of that plane, despite the best efforts by the dive units. Obviously, it went right into the soil and right down. Um, well, we've never found it, never found it. That's a, that's a crazy story. Yep. Um, Air France crash at the airport, 2005. Uh, I remember that one. was working. Um, I was the first uh, sergeant on the scene uh, and the third officer there. And um, the old days we had, uh, Peel was the first department to put together um, an emergency manual, disaster manual. And in those days, uh, you want to write any times or anything, you, you better commit a lot of that to memory. And it's amazing how we just came back when that situation went down. Um, we had everything organized. It was tic-tac-toe, not a problem. Fortunately, um, no one died. We thought it would have, uh, people would have died if people were badly injured. Myself and another officer climbed aboard the front of that aircraft while the back was burning. He didn't want to go on and says, hey, remember we took an oath, buddy, preserve lives. Is it conceivable someone could have had a heart attack and passed out? Is it conceivable there was an elderly person who might have been handicapped and who was left behind by the people who were rushing out? We had to literally climb up because the um, chute on the left side of the plane, the port side, 
I deployed, but it was not uh, opened. And we got in there with the flashlights going down. It was a wide-body jet. Police, police, anybody here? Uh, we got to about the, just before we got to the economy class cabin, and then the billows of smoke just drove us out. And we got out. And keep in mind, it was just raining sideways. And as we looked over to the wing, the port wing of the aircraft, took a brief second, but there was a large hole like this. What I thought was water was jet fuel coming out. So we just took off up the hill, and we got in the radio, told the guys to pull back, pull back, and in about five minutes, the bloody thing exploded. Um, it was quite an experience, but fortunately, no one died. Subsequent to that, Air France, their CEO, and a bunch of people flew over from France, and they put on a thank you reception for us at the airport. And they wanted to meet the guys who uh, actually went on board the aircraft to try and see if any of their passengers were alive. Um, again, that was quite a quite a touching moment. That's just amazing. No one died in that. No incident. one died in that aircraft. It was just amazing. 1978, we had another one, Air Canada DC-9, go off the the runway, the exact location that Air France went down. I was there also, uh, working the day shift out of 21 Division. Two people died in that one. Um, there's been a couple of things. We've had uh, a cargo plane take off, and somehow the, the cargo net uh, just broke loose, and the plane took off like that cargo shifted. It went straight up and just came right back down, and it's... Uh, on its tail, obviously, both. Uh, there's only two people aboard the pilots. They were killed. Do you think from all the calls that you've done, like you described the suicide, the one at the Halton border with us, you described what you had to do to go in the Air France, does policing change you? Are you the same person when you started? Is it something that wears and tears on you? Yes or no. Um, I never developed PTSD. I have, I have dealt with some stuff um, that uh, would churn your stomach. I came out with my head screwed on right. I'm a happy camper. I could laugh and uh, have fun at any time. Um, I got thrown out of a funeral home for cutting up the stiff there because he was a friend of ours. Anyhow, um, has it changed me? I think I've learned a lot. Learned a lot about life, about uh, humanity. I haven't lost my powers of observation. I would be driving around. I would see things. Um, I may have my wife with me, and did you see that? What? <laughs> you know, and the odd times I'd circle the block and come back. That guy's a lookout for something. You see things. You look at things. Um, you realize that life being what it is, everyone isn't going to be on their best behavior or has your interest at heart. In terms of whether it has taken me down mentally or emotionally, no, none. And also, you got to remember, Joe, that um, we're going to go back a bit here. When we started, we didn't have the number of bureaus that Peel has now. We had CIB, homicide, frauds, youth bureau, intel, ident, that was about it. You went to a call, even though you're a brand new constable out there, you went to a call as a fatal uh, vehicle collision. You handled the whole thing from stem to stern. You had to go to the autopsy with IDENT. You had to take the samples down to CFS. You had to get the reports back. You had to do your investigation to the best of your knowledge and with the assistance of the experienced guys. We did not have a professional unit as MCB in those days. So you learned a lot. As soon as you came on, you learned. Okay, for the audience who don't know, the M what is that? Uh, Major Collision Bureau, yeah, pardon make me. Sure. Yes. Major <laughs> Collision Bureau as... As a uh, sergeant at, uh, when I was at the 11th Division in uniform, um, one of the things I used to do with a, a, a recruit, a rookie, before he was put out on his own, before we deemed that he was okay to go out on his own, I always arranged for him to attend an autopsy. Um, people would say, why do you do that? Well, this is part of the job. He may go into... So are you something. the reasons why I had to go to one? <laughs> <laughs> but I used to arrange it. And uh, because they knew me quite well at the, at the Credit Valley Hospital. And um, it might be a call you work, you, you went to the day before. It could be just a sudden death guy falls off a ladder or something. And you'd uh, take the rookies in there and um, you'd say, look, it's an educational thing. Not everyone enjoyed it, but you may show up at a scene of a crash someday and you're going to see bodies obliterated. What are you going to do? 
I yeah, it's. Uh, I remember going to my uh, post mortem. I think at that time we had to go too. I don't know if it's still like that today. I don't know. And uh, it was different, but I think it made me a better officer. It made me understand a lot of things. Certainly did. And it made me handle what was coming better. Mm-hmm. I, when I look at a career like yours, 33 years, you went through a lot. You went through like 1991 Rodney King. I know it wasn't here, mm-hmm. but police take and should have, like that shouldn't have happened. And when you look at it, our the community didn't think highly of us. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I'm bringing that up, because we also had recently the George Floyd Yes. And because of those incidents and many more incidents, there's like, there's a big movement going around calling defund, defund the police. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What's your thoughts on those interactions and also the defund police? Well, defund police. I just wonder the people who are saying that, I wonder what, uh, what planet they're living on. Um, Police are part of society. We're not going away. We are an essential part of society. Now, let me just go back a bit. 1969. I was still living in Montreal. I was witness to the first ever police strike in this country. Montreal police went out on strike. It was only for 14 hours. But it was complete chaos. Women were not safe on the street because people thought they could do what they want, grab them, feel them. I went to my apartment, stayed in there, and just followed it uh, on a little radio I had. I think I might have had a black and white TV. There was looting. Uh, they were burning all kinds of buildings downtown. Um, the Murray Hill limousine, uh, which ran the, the bus company, they were destroyed. A Quebec provincial officer was shot and killed. That's never been solved. The military uh, had to come in just as they came in, then uh, it stopped. But you take the police off the street for two hours, even right here, right now, and you'll see what's happening. What is needed is training has to keep up with the times. Attitudes, the people we hire, they've got to look at life differently. The people who are doing the recruiting have got to screen these people very carefully. But do you think we should change our training? Because I remember when I played football mm-hmm. at the university level, on Monday we practice, Tuesday we practice, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday practice, Saturday game. And we did the play. We knew what we were doing. We practiced all week for it. Mm-hmm. And I think we should bring that to policing, that same mentality where if we practice and train all the time, not just fire your gun once a year or do a de-escalation situation once a year, if we do that on a continuous motion, mm-hmm. our training will triple and our confidence level will go up and we're less likely to have a, a George Floyd situation. I'm, and I think I, that's I'm the goal. You there. I'm with you with that one you got to look at their training. I'm going back to when I was on the job. And I suppose some of it applies to the day firearms training. We're basically taught to shoot for the torso. It's the biggest part of the body, so we could disable someone. All right? We used to have the um, videos that they would show, shoot or don't shoot, and you had to make that decision. And was, the guy didn't drop the knife, shoot him. It didn't seem to be room for common sense in there. He didn't drop the knife, shoot him. I've been there. I've been there. At a situation up in 21, I was just, oh, maybe about two years on the job. Get a call again. It was a domestic, it was a court. A bunch of people standing there. Go, Who called? Who wants the cops? And all of a sudden, the lady shouts, look out, he's got a knife. And I turned around. There's a guy behind me with a knife. A good butcher said knife. I drew my weapon on him. He never advanced. He kept backing. And I kept advancing on him. But he kept backing. Now, we did have portables then. Told him what I had. A new backup was coming. He never dropped the knife. He never dropped the knife. But he kept backing. Had he advanced? Should I have? Good chance I would have. But I knew backup was coming. Suddenly now an unmarked unit with uh, two tack guys, and they came around the corner, and they saw what was going down. The driver had the common sense or the quick reaction. He saw what was happening. He just put the bumper right in the back of his legs, knocked him right over the hood. Knife was gone. We grabbed him. If I had shot that individual in those days, I would have been justified. That's the training. He didn't drop the knife, shoot him. The common sense dictated he wasn't coming at me. Found out subsequently that he was a MHA, a mental health act case. That's amazing how you... I went back. Common sense is such a key to policing. 
most of the time. Went back to the station. Keep in mind, I'm still pumped from the adrenaline rush. I brief the staff, and I got to do up my report. And suddenly, I was out of control. I was shaking. I couldn't sit and do that report. I needed a good shot of rum at that time, to be <laughs> honest. But I had to get up and walk around, try to get a coffee. I, I, I was just in contortion. I just couldn't do it. Why? Knowing what could have happened if I had shot this guy. I would have had to live with that. Yes, he had a knife. But the threat was in abeyance. He kept backing. He didn't advance. It's a very some powerful of the situations, story. I've looked at some of the situations uh, in policing in, in, in Ontario. And people have lost their lives because uh, they didn't drop the knife, but they did not advance. Wait for other officers to get there. If he comes at you, it's a different situation. But you get that adrenaline rush. And we go back to the training. Oh, that's what they said. If you didn't drop the weapon, shoot him. The more training we have, the better it would be. All the time. Here's a, a really tough question. And as a black officer, I would like your opinion on it. Systematic racism. Does it hmm? exist in policing? Systematic racism is part of society. Always has been. I suspect it always will be. Yes, it is. It, yes, it is present in, in policing. It is present in every police department. It's present in the military. It's present in the corporate world. It's present in politicians. It's present in your neighbor. It's people tend to stereotype. And you ask somebody, how many friends have you got? You ever been to school with a black guy or a South Asian? No. Well, it's amazing how you know so much about them. They do this. They do that. They this. Where'd you get that from? Stereotypes. Stereotypes. It's something, it's nothing to be embarrassed to say. It's there. Training, education, getting to know people in the community, man. That's the only way. Talk to people. Policing is a people okay, job. So I'm going to put you, I'm going to give you power. You're chief of police for mm-hmm. Peel Regional Police. Mm-hmm. I'm putting you up there. What would you do to make us better? Again, it goes back to training. It goes back to getting out of your damn cruiser and talking to people. We don't do that anymore. When I worked at the airport, we had the beat, so to speak, because you walked. Most of the time it was foot patrol. Personally, I knew just about everybody there from the CEO right down. They used to call me the mayor of the airport because everybody knew me. <laughs> um, and you found out things. People will talk to you. People will tell you things. There's, t- a big, there's a big drug problem at the airport, uh, importation, and it's being handled by the people who unload and load the aircraft. The vast majority of those people are decent people. But there's a hardcore bunch. There's a couple of gangs. People will tell you stuff. We'd feed it in the CIB. CIB only had so many guys to work it. But there's guys who want to talk to you if they got to know you. I agree with you. We need to get out of our cruisers more. And I, I yep. think um, we're moving that direction. We have a new unit that we formed. You might not be aware of it. Uh, Divisional Mobilization Unit. And that's their sole purpose is to engage the community and break down the barriers with the community when you're in a non-call situation. And it's kind of funny that we have to have this unit because what, what you, how you policed in the 70s, we need to go back to today. And I think we're starting to it, and hopefully it'll come sooner than later because we're moving in that direction. we got to do it. I think you got a little plaza someplace or a strip mall. Get out and talk to people. I don't know if, you, uh, if uh, the officers' front line still carry uh, business cards with them. Get out and give them people. My name is so-and-so. Anything's happening, let me know. Drop in. Have a coffee with the guy. How's things? What's happening? You know, yeah, I know we're busy. We're going from calls to calls to calls. And unfortunately, some sergeants out there, what the hell are you getting out to do? Get back in your damn car. Okay, he should be spoken to. Um, That's the direction we're moving into. You, you got to. We you, have you've to. got to do it. You've got to do it. What's your favorite uh, cop TV show or movie? <laughs> Please don't say like my friend Jeff who likes uh, Kegney and Lacey. Even though it wasn't oh. a bad show, but uh, I expect a lot more from you. I, I, I don't watch police shows, but uh, going back was used to be um, old Barney Miller. Oh, Barney Miller. Back. From <laughs> the, the 60s, 70s. Yes. <laughs> it kind of, the, the, the way the detective office was set up was the way some of the old CIB offices were. Uh, it was humorous, but uh, it brought into times there was some reality built into it. But um, was I really that, Do don't you think Barney shows. Miller was realistic to the way... He, of to a certain point, to a certain point it was. I mean, keep in mind, this was entertainment. But to a certain point, there were situations there. Um, 
But as a rule, I, I, I don't like a police show. I, I was a police show, so I had enough of that. <laughs> I, that's true. You are the big show. Um, my final question for you, because um, it's been amazing. I'm going to have to have you back. There's so many stories that you have to tell. It's it's amazing. Is What advice would you give for a, a, a person today who wants to become an officer? First thing I would say is research the profession properly. Know what you're getting into. All right? It's not just as you see on television, everything's done in an hour. Research the profession. Talk to people who are police officers, from the recruits up to the experienced guys. If possible, try and arrange your right along if you're still in college, if that could be done through the college. Certainly, if you want to be a police officer in the greater Toronto area, Toronto, Peel, York, Halton, know about the different ethnicities you're going to be dealing with. You have to, period. you got to know about them. If you come in with the stereotypes, you are going to screw up. You're going to make a lot of mistakes. And again, as I said before, think about the negative publicity that you bring to the police department. Okay? Um, I believe policing is a noble profession. I wanted to do it. I did it. I was satisfied. I left with no no regrets. I don't believe I had a ever had a bad day. Yes, there were people of superior rank at times who tried to ruin your day, but you laughed it off. You know, we made fun of them. They didn't even know that. They were laughing behind their backs. But uh, policing is a good job. I totally agree with you, and and to our people listening out there who want to be officers, please go to our website, peelpolice.ca. There's information on how you could apply. We're always looking for good people. Be the change that we want to be. I just want to thank you, Lonnie Blackett, Sergeant. Thank you for taking the time to visit us today and providing with some insight in your your experience as a police officer at Peel Region of Police. This was amazing. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thank you.